Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, October 7th. In today's news, U.S. troops are pulling out of Syria ahead of a Turkish attack on the Kurds. The whistleblower's attorney says he's now representing multiple officials. And Iraqi protests vent their rage in Baghdad as a government crackdown becomes deadlier. But first, the big idea. The Supreme Court's fall term begins today. It will test Chief Justice John Roberts' efforts to portray the institution as above the noisy and partisan battles of the moment. Two unknowns add to the uncertainty. The health of the court's oldest member, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and whether the court will be drawn into legal controversies arising from the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Resolution of the most contentious cases could happen next June in the heat of the 2020 presidential campaign. Bob Barnes, our longtime Supreme Court reporter, identifies five of the most contentious cases on the court's docket. In no particular order, the justices will consider whether federal law protects LGBTQ workers from discrimination or being fired, whether the Trump administration's efforts to end the Obama-era program that protects immigrants brought to the country as children are lawful, the first Second Amendment claim involving gun ownership in more than a decade, whether a state may withhold aid to private religious schools if it offers funding to secular ones, and an abortion case that gives the court's new conservatives an opportunity to begin reconstructing its jurisprudence on what is perhaps the nation's most divisive subject. On the horizon, there are other cases that could redefine when the government must give greater deference to a person's religious beliefs, and perhaps a third trip to the high court for Obamacare. Last term, after the partisan bitterness that accompanied Brett Kavanaugh's ascension, the justices sought common ground on some issues and punted on others, abortion restrictions among them, as well as the future of the Dreamers. That delay is over, and court watchers say the conservative majority, bolstered by Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, Trump's other pick, is now in a position to be more assertive this term. Determining how far and how fast the court moves right is Roberts, who at age 64 is entering his 15th year as Chief Justice and his second year as the court's pivotal member. Since the retirement of Anthony Kennedy in 2018, Roberts is the median between four more conservative colleagues on one side and four liberals on the other. He uses every public appearance to try to persuade the public that the court may be ideological, but is not partisan. Roberts has noted that the range of majority lineups last term, especially in cases that divided five to four, often had unusual coalitions. He likes to point out that the court's conservatives made up the majority in those five to four cases only about one third of the time. Roberts gave his first glimpses of how he might play his pivotal role in the two most politically important cases of last term, whether federal courts have a role in policing electoral maps for extreme partisan gerrymandering, and whether the Trump administration could add a citizenship question to the 2020 census form. He voted no in the gerrymandering case, joined by the conservatives, and no in the census case, joined by the liberals. But some events are beyond his and the court's control. Ginsburg's health is one of them. In December, the senior liberal member of the court had part of one lung removed after cancer was discovered. The recovery caused her to miss a round of oral arguments for the first time in 26 years on the bench. Then this summer, the 86-year-old announced that she had undergone radiation treatment for a tumor on her pancreas. She has counteracted the worries about her condition with an impressive show of vigor. Nearly a dozen speaking engagements over the past month, from Buffalo to Chicago to Little Rock and New York. But if her health forced her from her seat, the Republican Senate has made clear it would move quickly 
to ensure Trump would name her replacement and solidify conservative control of the court. And beyond that, nothing would put the Supreme Court more squarely in the political spotlight than having to rule on issues related to impeachment proceedings against the president. Lawsuits seeking Trump's tax returns and alleging that he's violating the Constitution's emolument clause by taking money from foreign governments through his family businesses continue to make their way through the legal process, in some cases in appellate courts, just one step from the Supremes. Congressional subpoenas for information from the executive branch are being routinely ignored by the Trump administration. The judiciary will need to either enforce these or allow Trump to get away with stonewalling a co-equal branch. And that's the big idea. Here are three other big headlines that should be on your radar as we start another week. Number one, the United States began withdrawing American troops from Syria's border with Turkey while you were sleeping in the clearest sign yet that the Trump administration is washing its hands of an explosive situation between the Turkish military and U.S.-allied Kurdish fighters. The withdrawal followed a late Sunday night statement by the White House that the United States will not intervene in a long-threatened Turkish offensive into northern Syria. The announcement, which signaled an abrupt end to a months-long American effort to broker peace between two important allies, came after a call between President Trump and Turkish President Recep Erdogan. Erdogan said in a speech today that the withdrawal began soon after their phone call. A U.S. official confirms to The Washington Post that troops have left observation posts in border villages at around 6.30 a.m. local time. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham says the Turkish leader will soon be moving forward with sending troops to battle Kurdish forces, who Ankara sees as terrorists, but really have been the chief U.S. partner against the Islamic State. The Syrian Democratic Forces, a major Kurdish group that has fought hand-in-hand with the U.S. military, said troops have already begun pulling out and criticized what they're calling an American betrayal. This is a dramatic turn after a prolonged attempt by the U.S. to hammer out an arrangement that would allay the Turks' concern about Syrian Kurdish forces close to their border, while also averting a battle that will be bloody for Kurdish fighters who have been so essential to American efforts in the region. Military officials on our side point out that Kurdish assistance is still required to avoid a return of the Islamic State in Syria, and to guard facilities where Islamic State militants and their families are being held. A senior U.S. official, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss a fluid situation, says the U.S. government has, quote, no idea what the Turkish operation will look like, whether it will be small and symbolic or a major offensive intended to push 30 or 40 kilometers into Syria. U.S. officials say an operation deep into Syria will further jeopardize the security of ISIS prisons, which are being guarded by the Kurds. There are also concerns that the Kurds, and the SDF particularly, could now ally with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad after being abandoned by the United States. One senior official said, quote, there are many potential disastrous outcomes to this. It's a very big deal. Number two, an attorney for the CIA whistleblower who sounded the alarm on Trump's attempt to coerce Ukraine into going after Joe Biden says he now represents multiple whistleblowers. Mark Zaid, who also is a member of the original whistleblowers legal team, confirmed that the team is now representing a second whistleblower, someone who works inside the intelligence community. According to him, that second individual has spoken to the inspector general of the intelligence community. They haven't filed a formal complaint, but apparently this person has firsthand knowledge that supports the first whistleblower. No White House officials made appearances on the Sunday morning news shows. 
leaving it up to congressional Republicans and Trump personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani to defend him in heated interviews during which they offered at times contradictory explanations for the president's actions. The new defense that congressional Republicans are trying to push is that Trump was joking when he called on China last week to investigate the Bidens. But Trump clearly wasn't joking, and he's undercut that talking point by continuing to insist that he wants China to investigate Biden. Last night, the president also baselessly accused Nancy Pelosi of committing treason. Number three, offline and on edge, Iraq is spiraling deeper into violence. The country's troops cracking down on anti-government protests have turned their guns on the people. Officials said Sunday that 104 people have been killed and more than 6,100 wounded. The six days of street protests are the largest challenge yet to the very fragile government of the prime minister, Adel Abdul Mahdi. Demonstrators gathered last week to decry what they described as endemic corruption. But by the weekend, it was a revolt against the entire system. The dispatches from our reporters on the ground are chilling. With the Internet suspended, Iraq's television screens are now the stage for a frantic tug of war as authorities project normalcy and protesters vent their rage. State media shows taxis rolling calmly through the streets of Baghdad. Opposition outlets are broadcasting video of bullets whistling through angry crowds. In a cabinet meeting late Saturday, the prime minister announced a 17-point recovery plan that his government hopes might calm the people. Among the 17 points are construction of more housing units and stipends for the unemployed, as well as compensation for families of young men killed during the demonstrations. But Sunday evening, protesters gathered again in Baghdad. Demonstrators said security forces continue to use tear gas against them and live ammunition. Police and gunmen have now raided several news outlets that are broadcasting footage of the protests. In Baghdad, the protesters are mostly young men who say they've grown up without a future. Born around the time of the U.S. invasion in 2003, their childhoods were battered by war. In adulthood, they have been shut out of a job market that favors those with political connections. Two years after the Islamic State was officially defeated in Iraq, despite record oil output, many of the country's nearly 14 million people live in conditions that are getting worse, not better. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, October 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.